In the 2018 elections before the pandemic, I was knocking doors with a 17-year-old. It was her turn to go through the script. We're switching off. And her line is, I'm 17, I can't vote, and I'm asking you to do it. And I need you to vote to help defeat this racist ballot measure. And at that moment, the man who answered the door got his ballot out and also called someone else in his house to get their ballot, and they voted right there on the spot. This is Celia Howes with the Oregon Federal Bar Association. Together with the Oregon Historical Society, we are hosting a podcast series in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. We are far from a universal and equitable right to vote. Our guests are community leaders, activists, scholars, and students who share their insights about the heroes of our past, the inequities that persist today, and the movements that invite your participation. Today, I'm honored to speak with Samantha Gladue. Samantha has her degree in community development and a background in organizational development. She's used her education to work on policy issues globally and in Oregon. She is the executive director of Next Up Oregon, a 501c3 on a mission to mobilize young voters to develop young people as community and government leaders, and to expand voting rights by breaking down systemic barriers. I want to talk about getting out the vote, because that does seem like something that you're focused on. And one thing that has been drawn to my attention is that new voter registrations are down this year. Um, And there's lots of different factors that must play into that. But I know that that's one of the areas that Next Up is focused on. And so let me just kind of ask you to start with, why is it important for new voters to get involved in the democratic process and to register to vote to participate in this year's election? Politics aside. (laughs) Next up does three big things. We do policy change, develop bold leaders, and mobilize young voters. And on the young voters front, we care a lot about connecting with young people to explain the civic process, explain what are the steps that you have to take to become vote ready. And it's really important because research shows that we are much more likely to make it a lifelong habit of voting when we start at a young age. That's why we push things like pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds, and even modernizing the voting age by lowering it to 16, because we know that when young people have the chance to dig in while they're in school, while they're surrounded by family, they are much more likely to get the fuller picture of what will make them feel ready to go on and take on that responsibility of voting and help make decisions. And with young people, for the first time in a couple generations, becoming the largest voting block, there's so much power in it. And young people are brilliant. We have so many great ideas and aren't used to being told no 
all the time to the point where our sense of innovation goes away. The possibilities are limitless if we come together and make our collective voices heard. How are you able to push initiatives to have the voting age start at 16? A few different ways, mainly legislatively. That's where we have a lot of the traction when we're trying to update our election system to make it the best that it possibly could be. And here in Oregon, to lower the voting age, we require a constitutional amendment to update that. That's a really big ask when we know that people have such a variety of gut reactions to that. So we've got to do a little bit of culture shift work and making the case that young people are smart, young people are credible, autonomous actors who already engage with a lot of our systems, whether it's driving, paying taxes, engaging with the judicial system. And really, we need Oregonians to see that. So a couple of the ways that we are pushing that culture shift and changing the norms are by advocating for better civics education and also 17-year-olds voting in the primary if they'll be 18 in the general election. Both of those we're bringing up in the 2021 legislative session. And that way you can sort of inch inch the culture down to um, looking at age 16 as being a viable participant in our democracy. Yes, exactly. And it wasn't that long ago when a bunch of starry-eyed young advocates had the brilliant realization that the voting age should not be 21, it should be 18. So there's precedent for lowering the voting age in our country, and states have a lot of control when deciding what that age should be. Great. Um, do you have like any examples of youth voters or hopeful youth voters that have stories about what they would like to see change or how they would like to have their voice counted but are feeling frustrated about being excluded from the process? So many of them. And one story that is vivid for me was in the 2018 election cycle back before the pandemic when our get out the vote efforts looked like actually knocking doors and getting out there face to face in communities organizing. I was knocking doors with a 17 year old. It was her first time ever knocking doors. When you knock on a door, you never know what the response is going to be, what someone will say, what they might be wearing or doing, or whether they'll go get their entire family to also be part of the conversation. And it was her turn to go through the script. We're switching off. And her line is, I'm 17, I can't vote, and I'm asking you to do it. And I need you to vote to help defeat this racist ballot measure. For example, we were working to defeat a ballot measure that would have ended our sanctuary state status. And at that moment, the man who answered the door got his ballot out because he took her so seriously and also called someone else in his house to get their ballot. And they voted right there on the spot. And that was so cool. That's amazing. I wish I could have been there to see that, Samantha. And like, I can't imagine what she felt like maybe the subsequent year turning in her first ballot um, somebody who's just ready to move mountains, it sounds like. Yeah, 
It's amazing, right? And there are many youth activists and organizers who are ready to move those mountains, who are dedicating hours and hours of their lives between classes and after school to making change, whether it's with the Black Lives Matter movement, Fridays for Freedom, the climate strike, gun violence. All of these big issues right now are really feeling like they're on the shoulders of young people And one of the great gems that came from the seven focus groups that we did to find out what's up with civics education in this state was along the lines of, I'm so sick of older people telling us that we are the future when, hello, you're still here, you can make change too, and probably have more of the contacts and skills to do so. Um, But young people feeling like, All of this is being put on us to change, and some of us can't even vote. Right. That's what I was hearing, just being told that this is your responsibility, but you can't participate. Exactly. That's really heavy. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, disenfranchisement is one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast to look into what uh, historically this country has done to disenfranchise different groups of people, but to then also restore voting rights to those individuals who didn't before have a voice. And yet here we are, you know, all these years later, um, still dealing with significant impairments on various groups, voting rights, and young people are a really important group to talk about because like you said, you know, either they're are not eligible to vote yet, who are engaged, active-minded, credible, um, and then they're just not being heard. And on the topic of disenfranchisement of groups over the years, we know that our country just celebrated the 100-year anniversary of women's suffrage, which is a massive monument to change and equality and gender justice, right? And one of the most important things to remember is that women's suffrage really ended up being for white women to gain the vote. And over the years, from the framing of our country, where white men who owned land were able to vote to the framing of our state where we had a racial exclusion qualification in our state constitution, people of color have been purposefully omitted from our election system, from our systems of power in our country. And one of the things that we're working on for 2021 is restoration of voting rights for Oregonians who are in prison, because it is a way that we can address how our legal system and our election system, and really all the systems have been created to keep power among white folks and perpetuate a system of white supremacy. And so our state constitution says that Oregonians in prison cannot vote unless otherwise provided by law. So we are seeking to otherwise provide by law that Oregonians in prison can vote. And currently the system is such so that after someone has completed a prison sentence, 
and you get a prison sentence for a felony, um, then when people return to the community, they're able to vote again. And that is better than some other states where the right to vote is revoked for life if you have a felony. But here there's a lot of misinformation because so many other states do disenfranchise people for life due to a felony that people think, I can't vote, I have a felony. And that's just not true. So we wanna go above and beyond that misinformation and really build a path to more self-ownership and autonomy for the adults in custody in our prison system who so often have things happen to them while they are in custody and then have no one accountable to them, right? So whether it's a policy within the Department of Corrections that they have no influence over or writing to their legislator and maybe not getting a good enough response because they're not a constituent who votes, that is a big deal. And we want to correct for that and make sure that all Oregonians are treated in their whole civic potential. And something really stark to help me think about why this is so important is digging into who is in prison in Oregon. When you round up, it's about 15,000 people. And 95% of these Oregonians in prison return to communities. And when you look at the gender representation, you realize about 75% of the women in prison are mothers and about 90% of the men are dads. Almost 9% are veterans and over a quarter are under 35 years old, which is a prime time to develop civic habits. And then of course, Oregon, like the rest of the country, disproportionately incarcerates and thus disenfranchises Black, Indigenous, and people of color at much higher rates than these groups are part of our population. And so all of these groups are disproportionately disenfranchised when they're in prison. And there was this cool study in 2014 by the Florida Board of Parole, which found that community members who rejoined society after completing their sentence were 22% less likely to recidivate or to go back to prison if they voted. And we want to see with our own study what it would be like if we joined the two other states, Maine and Vermont, and the District of Columbia in restoring the right to vote. That would be excellent. As you know, I'm a criminal defense attorney. And when we submit in federal court a plea petition, which is the document advising the defendant of the rights that they are giving up when they enter a guilty plea, which is how most cases resolve, um, among the rights that are at risk after entering a guilty plea and becoming a felon is the right to vote. And, you know, it's always a hard conversation, I'll say, to have with my clients about when that right restores, if 
ever at all. Um, and you know, you might find that your numbers are even higher when you look at the defendants who are serving federal prison sentences. There's only one federal prison in Oregon. Um, but because there's only one federal prison in Oregon and because that prison does not house female inmates, any females that are sentenced to prison through our federal system are sent out of state to serve their sentences. You know, the numbers that you're citing are large and upsetting, but most likely understating the greatness of the problem and how many Oregonians this actually affects. You know, you're not talking about the history of people who have been incarcerating and then released into the community, perhaps having been distanced from their communities and feeling disenfranchised and not understanding or knowing that they actually can participate now that they've been released into the community. Yeah, that is a great point. You know, this is a massive problem. And the numbers that I mentioned are for Department of Corrections exclusively. So the mm -hmm. Oregon-based numbers. And what you brought up around, you know, people not feeling connected to community is so key, especially because we've seen the efficacy of programs like the Family Preservation Project, where when moms at Coffee Creek are connected with their children and then their children's teachers, they do so much better as a whole. And I really do think that having the opportunity for Oregonians in prison to vote on their local school boards and things like that that really impact their family every single day will help bring the connection and hopefully bring some healing. I agree. So I think that's an, a really important project you're working on. I'm so thrilled to know that your organization is on it. <laughs> so tell me, um, tell me what the current status is of the legislation that you're working on. We have a chief sponsor named Representative Andrea Salinas, who's in Lake Oswego, joined also by Representative Janelle Bynum in Happy Valley in Damascus, and Senator Przanski, who is in the south of Eugene area with a lot of trees. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a really powerful lineup so far, right? We've got both chairs of the judiciary committees and someone who really knows um, how to work a bill in all of those sponsors. So the bill right now has been requested by legislative council. They're writing it, drafting it. We'll get it back in a few weeks and then introduce it in the January 21 session with more people joining on to sponsor. And so far, the response has been pretty great as I've been previewing it for legislators. People have a few logistical questions, but they're sharp and smart questions that I think we'll find some answers to. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, because you mentioned trees and south of Eugene, um, this in Oregon, we just had an unprecedented wildfire season. Sadly, so many Oregonians were displaced. That will surely affect the ease with which they place their vote this fall. Um, what, what should they be doing to make sure their vote gets counted? 
Oregonians who have been displaced can still vote at their home address, which is great, even if their home is no longer standing or they cannot go back. And the way to do that, unfortunately, requires going to a county elections office, which is a bit of a burden, but so worth it to vote and to have your voice be heard. And you can go to any county elections office, present your identification, say who you are, where you live, and they can print you a ballot. You can also call in advance to make sure that it's ready when you want to pick it up. And that's a nice time saver. And then even at the elections office, there's some tables with some privacy screens where you can fill out your ballot right then and there if you don't then want to return to a dropped site or if you miss the deadline to mail your ballot, which is October 27th. And if you want to bypass all of that and you know where you're going to be when ballots are mailed, you can update your mailing address for your voter registration so that then a ballot will be sent to wherever you're residing. You can still maintain your residence address as the address of your home, but update your mailing address. So your ballot will have all the things on it that it would have at your home but you'll be somewhere else and still able to vote on all those things. And for that, you can go to OregonVotes.gov and find the place to update your voter registration. You will need an Oregon DMV number, whether that's an ID, a permit, a driver's license, because that's how the elections office connects with your signature. And if you don't have that, then you can print out a form or pick one up and fill it out. So that's OregonVotes.gov is where you go to update your registration, claim your ballot, and that's also where you can find where your county elections office is. <laughs> There's so much information there. You should go there anyway. OregonVotes.gov. I'll go there. Thank you. Um, we are going to have county level and city level elections coming up in November in addition to the national positions being elected. Are there any particular ballot measures or races that will be particularly relevant to young voters that they just need to draw their attention to these because Samantha, their lives depend on it? So many good ones. Oh my gosh. In particular, preschool for all, universal preschool for three and four-year-olds in Multnomah County is such a huge thing. It could be the difference between someone deciding to parent or not, or someone's family being able to make it and have economic mobility or not. That would be huge. And then also there's this ballot measure in the city of Portland to change how we do police accountability. It gives teeth to some of the mechanisms that already exist and actually, you know, make some progress toward shaping what happens with police accountability. And that's gigantic. So these are some important issues to pay attention to when you receive your ballot this month. Um, Samantha, we are at the end of our time. Thank you so much for being patient with us um, as we navigate this podcasting recording. Um, it's new to all of us. Um, but I wanted to just make sure that I didn't skip over anything that was really important to you. Is there something I failed to ask you about that you're just dying to make sure is said. 
Right now, next up is working on a really ambitious goal of reaching every 18 to 29 year old in the state through some mode of contact, whether it's a text or a call. We want to turn out the youth vote and increase our position in terms of the ranking of the top five states for youth voter turnout. And that is going to require so many people pitching in. So the pitch to you is please go to nextuporegon.org slash events and you can find all of the times that we are phone banking and text banking. We're really needing people on the phones to make this happen and get out the youth vote because young people are a gigantic proportion of voters and those first time voters have got to have all the support that we can give to make sure that they know what the steps are to be vote ready, to vote by mail and get their things in. If I want to volunteer, Samantha, what is the time commitment that I'm looking at? You're looking at about two and a half hours on a weekday evening or on a weekend. That sounds really reasonable to make a really big difference. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on historical and ongoing barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit the website for the Oregon Historical Society at ohs.org and oregonfederalbarassociation.org. I am Celia Howes, the lead host and executive producer. Frayne Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer, our producer. Gabriel Granillo is our editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann.